I really still saw girls that were trapped in perfectionism. And in many ways, coding was this metaphor for bravery, right? So girls would come into our program and be like, I can't code. I, I don't, no, I'm not good at it. And then they would like literally give up before they even tried. But once they stuck with it, they built that algorithm. They built that website. And then they would ask themselves, damn, like what are the other things I've talked myself out of? And so it then orientate them towards an entirely different life that was about bravery. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm Nick LaPara, and on this show, I, along with my incredible guests, we explore what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Each one of my guests wants to leave the planet much better than they found it. Let's Give a Damn family, thank you for showing up. I'm so immensely glad that you're here. If you're listening to this podcast episode the day it releases, then yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Truly one of my favorite days of the year. I love so much about Dr. King. I think about his life and legacy several times a week, if not every day. He is, after all, partially responsible for me starting Let's Give a Damn in the first place. And during these days when we are fighting against white supremacy, fighting against racism, fighting against xenophobia, fighting against this COVID-19 virus, fighting for justice, fighting for equality and equity for all, and so much more, his words and wisdom mean more than ever before. I could spend the next hour reading quotes and speeches from Dr. King that have deeply impacted me, but I won't do that. You're not here for me after all, you're here for my guests. But I will share this one quote before we move on. During his Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967, Dr. King said these words, every person with humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits their conditions, but we must all protest. And this is what Let's Give a Damn is all about. We can't do it all. We can't care about everything. We can't fix everything, but we can all do something. We must all do the hard work of figuring out how to contribute, how to give a damn. So that means that every single year that Let's Give a Damn is around, we will continue to honor the imperfect but immensely powerful life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., born January 15, 1929, died April 4, 1968. He lived a wonderful, incredible life that we're still benefiting from today. We honor his work. We honor his witness. And friends, if you have a favorite Dr. King quote, let me know by emailing me at hello at letsgiveadam.com or send me a message at letsgiveadam or at Nick LaPara everywhere on social media. I'd love to hear your favorite quote or any way that Dr. King has impacted and influenced your life. Now, my friends, for our guest this week, Reshma Sajani, founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, a nonprofit working to close the gender gap in technology and change the image of what a computer programmer looks like and does. She is also the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, and the New York Times bestseller, Girls Who Code. And friends, after our conversation today, please go watch her TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection. And one of my favorite things about her life and career is that she was the first Indian American woman to run for U.S. Congress back in 2010. Reshma is an all-around badass, and I'm so glad to be sharing our conversation with you today. Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now, 
Let's get right into my conversation with Reshma Sajani. Let's go. It's an absolute pleasure to have Reshma Sajani on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome, Reshma. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Jeez, you've, you're an incredible human, and I've been watching you from afar for quite some time, really impressed with who you are and what you're doing, and I'm glad we get to a chance here at the beginning of a brand new year, hopefully a better year <laughs> than the previous one. Uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you here and, you know, consequently share this conversation with the world. Hopefully it'll encourage, you know, lots and lots of people. So again, thanks for joining me. Um, let's get going. So there's so much to talk about. We have a limited amount of time. Why don't we start with, I'm always interested in the connection between uh, where you came from and mm. how you got here, right? Because there's always clues. There's always things we can pick up on mm. like, you know, the, the why we turned out the way that we did and why we're doing the things that we're doing. So right. if you could take us back as far as you want to, I won't give a time frame or whatever, but when I say who are the people, places, and things that made you who you are today, where would you go back to? What would you share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think I would start with being the daughter of ref refugees. Uh, my parents came to this country in 1973 from Uganda. Uh, generations of Indians have lived in Africa, uh, and they were brought up, brought up, uh, brought down to build the railroads from Kampala to Mombasa. And my parents in 1973 were expelled by a crazy dictator. Uh, sound familiar? And you know, they had 90 days. <laughs> way too, way too, way close too to familiar. Home. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they had 90 days to leave the country or they'd be shot on spot. And so they became two of a thousand refugees who got status to come here. And so, you know, they came to Chicago, Illinois, not knowing the language, having no friends. My dad changed his name from Mukun to Mike. Um, a recruiter told him that he'd have an easier job, easier time getting a job if he had a more quote American name. Um, and, you know, even though they were both trained engineers, my father worked as a machinist, my mother sold cosmetics. And a lot of people, you know, I, I always say, like, I'm a patriot uh, and I believe in the American dream because so much of my life is a representation of that. Like, mm. there are people who took my parents in, um, you know, there are people who helped and supported them. And they, as like typical immigrants that didn't have family, that didn't know the language, you know, did everything um, in their power to like make sure that their children, you know, had every opportunity in the world. And when my parents came here, they were like, you know, they were in their 20s. Hmm. My mom was like seven months pregnant with my sister. It was just they were, you know, hadn't been married for all that long. They were in arranged marriage, right? I mean, it's just, it's wild, right? And so that was all, that all took place. They came directly into Chicago. And is that yep. where you grew up then? That's where I grew up. Yeah. And what was your experience, you know, as, uh, so I assume you were born here or were you born there? In I was Broadway? born here. Born I here. was yep. born here. Uh, yep. I came a couple of years later. Um, you know, I grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois. I uh, was one, we were one of the few Indian families. Um, I faced a lot of like very, you know, I would say overt racism. You know, my mother would get made fun of for wearing a sari at the Kmart. Our house would get TP'd. You know, I got into a schoolyard fight with like, you know, hey, how'd you go back home? I hated being brown. Mm. I hated being Indian. I hated that my name was hard to pronounce. I hated that we were Hindu. Like, I just wanted to fit in. And, you know, it's interesting when I think about, 
you know, my parents back then, they were trying to do the same thing, right? They were changing their names. My father would go to Toastmasters every week to get rid of his accent. They too, right, were kind of in this very racist society where they too had to, you know, um, fit in and assimilate. And so that's what they were kind of teaching us because I think the narrative was like America was a scary place if you didn't, but there was always a lot of forgiveness, right? About that, which I think is so interesting and powerful. That is interesting and powerful. And, and you know, what's, what's so funny about, you know, you referenced earlier when you're talking about your parents getting kicked out by a dictator and we've see a lot of that right now, hopefully the, uh, the very flawed, you know, I always talk about America as a failed experiment. We always talk about it as experiment. I think it's, I think it's not, not entirely failed, but so much of what we built this country on, it's failed. And it doesn't make, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. We started with raping and looting and stealing and, uh, you know, all sorts of shit to get to where we are today. Right. So it doesn't surprise me at all, but you know, some people talk about how, how terrible Donald Trump is and he is and how many bad things have happened in the last four years. And they have, I mean, this has been we should all be in very intense, if we're not already, very intense therapy. 100%. Just to sort of like, yeah, get yeah. through these times, right? But one of the profound things, you know, so I am the son of an immigrant, not a refugee. Well, I guess, I mean, I don't think my dad would classify themselves as refugees, but he did leave Guatemala when he was a mm-hmm. kid because of the war, the civil war that was going on there. That was the main impetus. So I went probably, there last year. Beautiful country. Oh my God. So beautiful. I, oh my I, God. We moved back. So I was born here, but we moved and and lived there for 10 years. And, wow. You know, very formidable years, 10 to 20. And I loved I loved it there. I never missed not living here. I still don't miss. I live here now, and I still don't love being here. But that's a different story for a different day. But, you know, you talked about growing up in Chicago, all these things. Donald Trump is not – he didn't make America bad. He just gave bad people – and bad ideologies permission to be vocal, right? Because you're talking about, you know, the 70s and the 80s growing up in Chicago, and we could go back, we could go back not just decades, but hundreds of years. It's always been this way. There's been, you know, a lot of good people uh, here in the US, but there's always been this, um, this, this white exceptionalism, white nationalism that has excluded so many people. So on the same, we have to recognize that even though this has always been a place where people want to come to because of, yeah, the way they can, you know, they have, a, they have a better shot at making a life for themselves. We have to recognize that Donald Trump is a symptom of the problem. Yeah. Not, he isn't the problem. He, he just brought all the shit out, right? Because you guys were experiencing so much of that yeah. back then, the same stuff they're experiencing now with refugees and otherwise. Well, it's interesting because like, I still believe I don't think America is a failed experiment. Okay. Like I believe in the promise and the dream. And I think it's realized for some and not realized for all. And now it feels like it's not realized for anybody. And that's why our our country feels so broken and so divided. And everybody is looking for someone to blame for their situation. Um, And I do think that there's an inherent amount of racism that is built into our society. Mm. You know, there is white privilege that is built into our society and we don't talk about it, nor do we really try to dismantle it, Mm. you know? And I think that like, for example, you know, the insurrection last week, if you watch the media, you'd think that there are a bunch of kooks, dudes with horns on their heads, all right, like QAnon, however you say it, how do you say it? It's Q- QAnon, yeah. QAnon. My husband I mean, it's a, it's it. it's fake. It's bullshit. It's so nobody so nobody knows like, how to say it. They're right, like, yeah, right. totally. 
Right. So, but when you look, it's your dentist. Yep. It's our neighbors. It's your teacher. Yep. It's your police officer. It is like regular, a federal judge's son, our legislators, you know, it's, that's who was there. And so when you, the trauma that you're talking about, right. I think for people of color is to think of like, oh my God. And this is why we have mass incarceration of black folks. Yep. This is why we have segregated schools and not educational opportunity. This is why black women get paid, you know, 70 cents on every dollar because the very people who are making those decisions have those beliefs. And that is just so much to process and to take in and to think about how, what do we do about that? Yeah. So in that, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, I talk about that all the time in the work that I'm doing, cause this is not just a podcast it's, it's multiple projects under this company, book, TV show, nonprofit, we're building a whole bunch of stuff. Right. And I'm constantly trying to figure out various ways to say, we need to build, you know, fewer walls, longer bridges, bigger tables with our lives and work. Like that has to be the work because, because of what you just said, these are not like fringe, like kooks. These are the people that we interact with every day at the grocery store. They serve us food, they pump our gas, they, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And this is why, and I could be wrong, I think, or maybe we're just looking at it from two different angles. You know, I said, I believe this is a failed experiment. You said, I don't believe it. And I, and I also agree with you, but the, the, the angle I'm coming at it from is how do we, the last question you just asked, how do we get out of this? You know, when I look at, uh, representative John Lewis, may he rest in peace that he was, he was fighting for the same things as a teenager mm -hmm. that he did on his dying day mm -hmm. and nothing changed during that time. You know, this summer, my friend's got arrested, uh, you know, for it, marching in Black Lives Matter marches, holding the same signs that yeah. black women in Selma, Alabama held in 1963. Yeah. So that's like, I just don't, I try to be optimistic, but I also look at things and I'm like, how do we come back from this where there are still people today, if you get on Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Parler, whatever, there are still people right now even after the president himself has very, very reluctantly set, you know, uh, 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 acknowledged the Biden forthcoming Biden administration, there are still people saying, like, he's a master chess player. Oh, there, totally. There's there's stuff yeah. coming. Like, we still got the twentieth. We got last hope, and even yeah. after he's out, he's still going to come back in four years. Yeah. Like, I don't know how we come back from this. Is well, my because, but, but, yeah? I mean, it's to your point though. It's not him. It's so I I agree with you, right? Like, meaning like we have not realized. America's truest potential. Sure, yet. agreed. Right? And I also think the thing I've realized in my work at Girls Who Code is that people don't give up power easily. Mm -hmm. And we keep waiting for people to give up power. Yeah. And and we get disappointed when they don't let us in. Yeah. And I think so, what I have learned is, so I'm a big believer in infiltration. So I was, I'm going to teach as many girls mm. as I can possibly teach. So guess what? All you can hire is women. All you can hire is people of color, right? That's the game. And I spent a lot of my time, you know, investing in black entrepreneurs because we have to create the next Facebook, Twitter, Amazon. We can't assume that they're going to let us in. And so to me, I just think that we also have to start thinking about building mm. and creating and new structures. And just like I look for allies with men who are going to help be part of my sisterhood to fight for parity. And there are them. 
we got to look for, for white folks who are also woke enough to basically recognize their, like as a, as an Indian woman, right. I recognize that like people assume a certain set of things about me. Hmm. I'm not going to kill you. I'm smart. You know what I mean? I am, you know, going to take my place in line. And so my, no one crosses the street when I am walking down it. If anything, I'm not seen. The amount of people who cut in front of me or who push me, right? And don't say sorry. Like I'm not seen. But I recognize that I have proximity to whiteness. And that gives me a whole bunch of unearned privilege that I do not deserve. Hmm. And so that's the conversation we need to be having with other communities of color. I mean, there's a lot of introspection around, again, the Indian American. And my parents came here and benefited from the civil rights movement. But very, so, you know, when you think about Indian American exceptionalism, it's not because we worked harder. It's because a certain subset of us were let in if we had certain qualifications. Yep. And then we were asked to adopt many of the prejudices that were here and to kind of just look the other way. Wow. And shrink ourselves. And so, and it, what, you know, and so that is what, why it's so important for us to look at what is our role as allies in the movement Mm. and what are some of the things that we too have to give up, right? Because we never earned it in the first place. Yeah. No, I love that idea. You said something super important that I don't think I'll forget anytime soon. And I love the, the, the wording there, this, this idea of infiltrating, right? Because they're not, you're, you're totally right to hone in on the fact that it's, I mean, and especially if we're going to get down to who's the who's the majority stakeholder in the not relinquishing of power, it's old white it's white men, right? Like just look at every look at the business world, look at the political world, look at every it's it's old white men everywhere you look, right? And so there's just a but but also every human does not like to relinquish control, right? right. Like it just it's it's part of who we are, especially if it's something that we really love or think that we need to be a part of. So they're not going to give it up. Therefore, we need to slowly but surely infiltrate, and you've got to something that I try to focus on as well and that you seem to already have a grasp on is this long game, right? Yeah. We're so, we're so focused. We, we, we love instant gratification. That's not always a bad thing, but we want things now. We want things to happen now. We want change to happen now. And the people that win are those that find, find the right allies, find the right team. And they, they have the long game in view. Yeah. They're, they're okay with maybe even stuff that they're working on outliving. Like I'm not yeah. going to see the fruits of my labor and that's okay. Cause that's how the fucking world works. Like that's yeah. how things happen is you work. I've mentioned John Lewis, like he is not going to see, like I'm sure in his lifetime, he wished he could see more progress on race relations and other in, in uh, civil rights and otherwise, but he didn't get to see all of that. And I don't think that he cared all that much on his no. dying bed. He was thinking, I lived my life well. I, you know, yeah. I did it. I did it well. So I love that infiltration long game uh, mindset. That's yeah. Really and cool. I would, I'd add just bravery and courage. You know, one of the things I love about AOC, whether you agree with her or disagree with her, she is authentic about what she believes and she lifts other, other women up with her. Right. And so to me, it's like the other thing sometimes we're not that great about as people of color and as women is we sometimes just, we get there and then we shut the door behind us. Mm, sure. You know? And so I think we have to be very intentional about when we have power, when we have influence, when we have platforms, 
to bring others along with us and to make room and sometimes to step aside for someone else's leadership. Um, and I think the, the part about courage and about really, and I think I get more courage the older I get in some ways, right? Which is ironic because, mm. you know, you think you're like this insurgent when you're in your twenties, but it's really by the time you're in your eighties when you're like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You know I mean, yep. and and I think that that's something that is really, really, really important for us to kind of call it what it is and, but still be willing to have conversations and to bring people along. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of, I don't understand people that aren't a fan of AOC. I get it. She's like, I don't get you know, it either. She, she's intense, but like, oh, how do you argue against anything that she advocates for? Like I am, I am 100% here for her Instagram rants when she gets on and just like lays it out. Like she's the. Here's the deal. People love this authenticity. I think it's why I think it's why working class people gravitated to Donald Trump so much. And again, I don't I don't understand it. I can't fathom it. You couldn't hand me a suitcase full of cash to ever vote for him. But I understand it in that he communicated directly with them after all their lives seeing all of this, you know, just bureaucratic bullshit, like not, you know, writing into your senator and never hearing back. Like, right. That's what they've been dealing with. Now they just had this direct pipeline. Right. Well, AOC is the uh, she is the better version. She is of the him. she is the realized version of what people want. There, they want yeah. that interaction. They want that connection. And I love that you also fo- you talked about you know doing it together. Like she didn't just slam the door behind her, which she could have. She could yeah. have said she could have said I made it in. Now let me go make a name for myself. And she's, you know, this is a cool lesson for all of us. When you do things as a team, you'll also do well. Like you're not yeah. giving anything up, right? 100%. That, that, that old proverb: If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So again, it's the long view. I think, well, I think, yeah, that's right. It's a lot. And it's also just like you build your allies. One of the things that like blows me, me that I've always, I was also thinking, I was reading Barack Obama's book and it was interesting when he gets to the place where, you know, he does a speech, right? Everyone loves him. And it's clear that the next person in line is supposed to be Hillary Clinton. But what happens? People see his potential. They see his potential greatness. And all these guys line up right? Chuck Schumer, right? Yep. Ted Kennedy. And they say, we'll help you. We'll show you the way. We'll rally people around you. Again, I, against the person who had been there, no one did that for AOC. Nope. In fact, they did quite the opposite, right? So everything that she has achieved, she had to fight for. Yeah, And it's it's different than Barack Obama because there was this kind of halo put on him and a very powerful white man moved mountains to get him where he got to. Hmm. And most women and most women of color I know never get that. Yeah. Never so get that. It's so true. And stories like with like AOC, you know, people love to, and I would never do this, but you know, you know the kind of people I'm talking about. They love to point out, they're like, oh, before this, she was a bartender which is leaving out so much context, right? She's a she's an accomplished, she's ridiculously smart, accomplished academically, and only came back because her father died and she she was bartending to because it's a it's a an amazing way to make money in New York and she's bartending to help support her family. Like yeah. that is way more noble and big of her than yeah. anything that these, you know, naysayers are doing. So I love I I I love the I'm I'm a huge fan of AOC. And I hope that she I, she's a legend in the making in my mind because if she can if she can maintain that that Bernie Sanders sort of like you know integrity uh, 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 staying consistent you know staying I think co- she will oh I I agree I think she will I don't have any doubt I just think it's just um, I think we have to and I you know 
her and I have done a lot of great work together. I love her personally. I think she's like a really good human. I think though it's, it's emotionally, it's hard. Mm. I, I worry about her. Totally. Like we all knew on Wednesday, who's the first person we're thinking about? Probably they're going to kill her. Right. Where's, where is she? Where's Alex? And she revealed, right? she revealed yeah. that she can't share more, but that it actually almost happened. Like people yeah. were after her. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let's stop. I'll stop fanboying over uh, uh, AOC <laughs> right now. Let's talk about you. We're here to talk about you. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about in the next few minutes. You've done some incredible work. Uh, we won't get it all in today. Maybe we'll do a part two someday. But let's talk about, you mentioned bravery and courage, which is a huge uh, uh, theme in all the work that you've done, right? Mm. So talk about um, what came first. Girls Who Code came first, right? 2011. That was sort yeah. of, that. That's talk about how that started, why yeah. it started, and yeah. what sort of happened over the last decade. Yeah. So, you know, when I graduated, I graduated $300,000 in student loan debt. And I was like, I'm going to New York City. And I did what everyone kind of immigrant daughter does. I got a job at a fancy law firm and I'm like, okay, I mean, I'll pay off my loans in like a year or two. And then I'll go do my public service work because flashback, you know, since I led my first March when I was 12, like I had been wow. organizing uh, for the same thing. What was that March it's about great. when you were 12? So it was, <laughs> my organization was called the prejudice reduction interested students movement prism. I got much better at naming things the older I got. But that's but, still amazing as a 12 year old. That's incredible. <laughs> but it was like, cause I was this brown kid in this very white community and I got made fun of and harassed and I had this event happen that gave me this big awakening. And I was like, all right, I'm going to teach, I'm going to make people more just. And, you know, that was kind of what I did all throughout high school, all throughout college, you know, all throughout most of my life. And I think like a lot of folks got saddled with a lot of debt and got put on the wrong path. Hmm. So now I find myself working in corporate America and I'm like, how the hell did I get here? Hmm. And you feel stuck. Right. And I finally found the courage to quit and decided I was going to run for office because that was always my dream was to be a public servant against like a, this, you know, 18 year incumbent. I thought I could shake every hand, meet every voter. And like, I mean, I was basically AOC 10 years ago, you know, except she won and I lost, but I lost miserably. But I was free. Because I was like, wow, like the thing that I have been wanting and fighting for my whole life did not happen for me personally. And I'm not dead. Like, yep. like, wow. Okay. And it felt really good. And I feel like I'm now back on track. Right. And, and I said to myself, okay, if they're not going to elect me, what are of all the things that I saw in the campaign trail, what's the thing that I feel like I can make a difference on? And it was really girls and Cody because when I was running for office, you'd go into schools and you'd see, you know, lines and lines of boys like learning to code. And you're like, I was like, where are the girls? And, you know, spent a couple of years thinking about the problem, trying to understand why there wasn't an intervention and came up with this idea of girls who code and then launched it. And, you know, it, 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 we built a movement and it, you know, we've taught 300,000 girls reached over millions. We have 10,000 girls who code clubs, half the teach, half the girls we teach are under the poverty line, half the girls we teach are black and Latina. And like, you know, we've made this huge movement. And, but part of that experience, I really still saw girls that were trapped in perfectionism. Hmm. And in many ways, coding was this metaphor for bravery, right? So girls would come into our program and be like, I can't code. I, I don't no, I'm not good at it. And then they would like literally give up before they even tried. But once they stuck with it, 
They built that algorithm. They built that website. And then they would ask themselves, damn, like what are the other things I've talked myself out of? And so it then orientate them towards an entirely different life that was about bravery. And that was making about the hard choices and taking risks. And so, you know, I've spent the past couple of years really talking to women about this, you know, and building this kind of, you know, and building this bravery movement and, and learning how to build bravery as if it's a muscle, right? By unlearning perfectionism. Well, because, yeah, it's it has to be a two-pronged approach if you want to holistically attack it. Because, yes, if you're getting, if you're getting, you know, early on when I started Let's Give a Damn, and I still have it in the back of my mind, but I had a lot of parents come saying, okay, what's Let's Give a Damn for kids? Because really what you're trying to do, what I've spent the last three years doing on my podcast and now this growing thing is trying to help adults unlearn a bunch of shit that they learned that they yeah. learned early on, right? Just, ba just bad, like wrong focus, wrong priorities, um, thinking it's all about you, uh, where your money goes, where your time goes, all that stuff. What if you got them when they were kids? What if when they're still spongy enough, you know, when they're still learning, when they're still pliable, they're still figuring out who they are, what they want to do. Well, yes, it, it makes sense that if you're going to holistically, you know, approach this issue of caring for, you know, caring for girls and women, well, you've got to go talk to the women who are yeah. in that. St they, they didn't get that when they were younger. Right. You, weren't, you weren't around when they were younger to say, wait, wait, it's not that you don't get coding. It's right. that you're believing a lot of lies in your head. You've been fed bullshit for years, even at your young age. And now I'm going to help you like push past that. You can totally code. Yeah. You can totally get this. I see with my kids. I've got three kids, six, seven, and eight. And th those are their ages, not their names. Um, I'm not I'm not Elon Musk naming my kids. <laughs> numbers. But I see it every single day. I saw it this morning with my son who's doing virtual school and my, my amazing wife's, you know, doing all that in the house in front of me. But like he was, he was reading these like words and he's looking at it and he's looking at it. And even at a young, like there's so many, there's so many things we can help them push through in other words. Yeah. And so I love that you, that you are also speaking, you know, over the last few years to women as well, because they, even at this point in their lives in their twenties and thirties and forties or whatever the demographic is, they need to kind of capture that bravery and that Absolutely. courage and unlearn a bunch of stuff yeah. that they're still, which is probably not helping them in their relationships, jobs, even at this point in their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like this idea that it's never too late. Like I no, think sometimes we no. think, oh, I'm, I'm 45. It's too late for me. Let me focus on my daughter. And what I always say is they're watching you. Mm, like they're getting it yep. from you. Like yep. if you don't change, they're never going to change. And in many ways we are this kind of like all, generational, like, replicating the things that we're doing, like with our, you know, with our, with our mothers. So it's, so it's, and then I think COVID has really deepened this sense of kind of perfectionism because many of us, you know, when, when, when COVID-19 started, it was like, Oh, go bake banana bread, like mm -hmm. learn how to like play the guitar and do your work and homeschool your kids and do all these things. And, you know, I think many women thought like that's what they were supposed to do. And it was like, no, your, that your only job is to stay alive. You know, that's your only job. And you would think that a pandemic would kill perfectionism, but if anything, it's incited it. Yeah, I I I totally agree with that. That has been my experience as well in my in my relationship circle. So the the organization is now a decade-ish old. Uh incredible work. You you put out some of the numbers a few minutes ago, some of the some of the yeah, some of the reach. 
talk about for a second some of the like ups and downs of running this organization, right? Because one of the things that I tried to, you know, focus on on this show is when we're talking about projects, whether they're for-profit companies, non-profit companies, or just like, yeah, actual projects, there's this desire always. You think you have this amazing idea and you think it's going to like take off and, you know, overnight sensation, the whole, the whole thing. And we have a problem um, in this, in this super fast paced culture that we live in, where we want things now, uh, we have a problem with sticking with things long yeah. enough. Like, like we really believe in it, but then it doesn't work. And so it's off to the wayside when really that could have been something tremendous. Had you stuck with it for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, we wanted that to happen in six months. And like, look at, I think this is a great idea. Why don't you all think this is a great idea? And so talk through like uh, just for a couple minutes about the journey. Like how has that been like building this thing up? Yeah. What have been some of the struggles and some of the wins? Well, I think first was like, I wasn't a nonprofit leader. Mm. You know, if you, when you know me, like, I like to go fast and I like to go big. And nonprofits are historically slow. Slow as sludge. bureaucratic and, you know, it's hard. And so like, to me, I always ran or tried to run the organization more like a movement or even more like a startup, right, than like a nonprofit. So that was, you know, that was a learning lesson. The same thing about managing people. Like, you know, I grew up in a very Asian family where nobody said good job, right? Like when I lost my election, my dad was like, here are the 10 things you did wrong. <laughs> so this idea of like KPIs and performance review, like all that stuff was new to me. And it, it went, in many ways, not really my style. Um, and... And so I had to learn a lot. I, I think the things that I had going for me was I had a board that believed in me. Like I mm. always say, like, if you want to create something, you got to, you got to find your like ride or die folks, right? The people who are like, I see it. And I had those, like I had that in Jack Dorsey. Like I had that in a handful of folks who, who believed in it before it was even real. And then, you know, I hired people who were smarter than me. And, you know, I wasn't a coder. I couldn't design our curriculum, but I sure as hell could sell it, right? Yeah. And so that, but that didn't intimidate me of finding people who are experts and bringing them in and giving them a seat at the table. And, um, you know, I think that that was, big. I think the biggest thing I've learned though is, you know, when I started Girls Who Code, I believed it was a pipeline problem. You know, when I started Girls Who Code, Twitter, Facebook were just starting. And we had this romantic view about big tech that it was all the good people mm. and they were only going to do good things. And they really wanted to hire women and people of color and they just couldn't find them. So Rush Johnny was just going to teach all of them. And then when I did, all nerds were welcome and you were all going to hire them. And what I've disappointingly learned eight, nine years later is that that's not true. Mm. That again, nobody gives up power. And that like there are still sexism and racism deeply embedded into the cultures of these companies, right? Many of which were built without us, that it's really hard to change. And, and I think secondly is, is this that they are, some of these companies have destroyed our country. And it's even more, it's, and it's because we weren't sitting at the table. You think that if women were sitting at the table and black people and brown people were sitting at the table in many of these companies that we would have had an insurrection that was organized on social media platforms? No. And um, the magnitude of that, right, and the reckoning of that is enormous. So how's the infiltrating going in in this arena, right? It was going You're, great before COVID happened. I yeah, mean, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. 
Look, we have not been afraid as an organization um, to call people out. And I've paid the price. Last, last year, I think I lost $10 million with my big mouth and I would do it again, you know? And so I think that that's, um, that's the hard work. I was happy to see that Google employees had unionized because I think we were expecting companies to kind of do the right thing and they're not going to do the mm-hmm. right thing on their mm-hmm. own. So that made me really happy and I think happy for the future of our, of our students. But the infiltrate is happening. I mean, we've moved the number of women in, in computer science from 16% in college campuses to in their 30s, Wow, 30%. And so you're going to see the same trends happen. I mean, I think, you know, if we can, we, we will get to gender parity by 2030, 2027 is our goal. And COVID threw that off though a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I think we've rebuilt the organization, built viral programming, doubled down on how, who we want to teach. And I think now it's again, getting our economy in the right place to have those job opportunities open for our students. Yeah. So, uh, in, 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 I think it's, it's apparent in which ways COVID-19 hurt this industry, right. And the work that you're doing, but how are you all sort of adjusting because it's very clear that we've done a piss poor job at, at taking care of this virus, right? We're still, I mean, there are countries that have eradicated it and we're at our worst, you know, peak ever. And, and, and now we're fucking up the vaccine, vaccine rollout like that's yeah. so terrible. And, um, you know, we're just not, we, we don't pay attention to, we have, we have, it seems we have little room as a people for facts and, you know, looking at good examples and then following them and doing hard things. Right. Yeah. Like Americans always talk about how, how hard and tough and brave we are. And I'm like, we're not tough because the science is out there. If we, I'm working with, I'm doing a project, a COVID zero project right now with Yanir Baryam, a, a MIT trained renowned physicist. And we're trying to get more communities, uh, convinced that forget the government, they're not going to help you but you as a community can get to COVID zero. We just follow what New Zealand did, yeah. what Australia did, what Thailand yeah. did, what Taiwan did, what Tokyo did, these cities and, st- and countries that have, have anyway. So we're not in a good place here in this country. No, no. And you know, the, the virus is mutating at this point and we don't know if these vaccines are gonna be super effective, blah, blah, blah. So how are you sort of, how is the tech world changing um, and what is girls who code yeah. sort of, yeah. What's, how has it changed the vision or so the direction? I can't speak even? to the tech world. Cause I would say girls, I would say from a girls, who code, but you're absolutely right. So like the school systems, like our principals and teachers are heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the department of education, government leaders have screwed it all up. Mm-hmm. Right. The fact that there are still, you know, so many kids here in New York City that don't have Wi-Fi, that don't have high, or don't it's have high-speed Wi-Fi, that don't have devices, and that are like twenty percent of kids aren't logging on, and this has consistently now happened for a year because we're coming on a year, yep. and you haven't figured it out is just inexcusable. So I think what we have done is said same thing, like forget about government, right? We are going to keep teaching girls and kids in the hardest to reach communities, how to code. So, you know, we built a virtual program. We sent everybody a hotspot and a Wi-Fi. We taught 6,000 girls this summer. Amazing. We're gonna do the same again next summer. And now we're really thinking about how we can, you know, the big problem that we're facing right now is we used to have 10,000 girls who code schools. Now, many of these schools have shut down their after school program because they can barely do what they need to do in the school day, right? So what do we do about that? And that's the real thing 
worth thinking about, about how to solve that problem. So we don't leave kids behind. I mean, they say that this is the lost generation. Like we're not going to lose, we're going to, you know, we're not going to lose children because hospitals were overrun or because of the virus. We're going to lose them because they didn't have a high speed Wi-Fi in a, in a device. Yep. And for a year, they you you can't get that back, and so that is to me the problem. I've been really thinking about. I'm focused on and like what we and organizations like us can do to fill that void. So let's spend the last couple minutes. I mean, that's we could talk for an hour on that, so we won't. But that's just yeah. Those are huge problems that that I'm glad your your brain and heart are working on those. Um, let's spend the last few minutes talking about uh, bravery. Yeah. You've uh, written an international bestseller called Brave Not Perfect. You've also given a pretty, you know, a, a TED talk that has gone all over the place um, with the same title, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brave Not Perfect. And you have a podcast called Brave Not Perfect. Mm-hmm. So talk about that idea. First, how do you define bravery? Yeah. And second of all, like really hammer home why Brave Not Perfect is yeah. the message. Why is that what you're banking on? Yeah. So one of the things I saw when I was at Girls Who Code is like when people come to our program, like nobody knows how to code. Mm-hmm. And every teacher, whether they were in Michigan, New York, California, Seattle, would tell me the same story. They'd say, you know, during that first week, when a student is learning how to code, the student will call her teacher over. And then she'll look at her and she'll say, I don't know what code to write. But when the teacher pressed undo a few times, she saw that the student actually wrote code and then deleted it. Oh, wow. so instead of saying, hey, I wrote this, I think the semicolon might be in the wrong place, they rather show nothing at all. I tell the story at TED, this talk goes viral, and I'm inundated with women saying, I do this too, right? With men saying, my daughter does this too. And it didn't matter whether they were teachers, dancers, doctors, artists, right? Retail workers, somewhere along the line, they were deleting the code of their life. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that they were giving up before they even tried. And so I wanted to understand, is that true? Like, when did we learn that? And more importantly, can we unlearn it? And so what I always say to people is like, go to any playground, you'll see how it starts, right? We tell our boys, I have two sons, you know, climb to the top of the monkey bars and just jump head first. But with our daughters, it's like, be careful, honey. Don't swing too high. Is your dress dirty? Come over here. Let me clean you up. Wow. Right? So we wrap them up with this bubble wrap. And it starts in the name of physical protection. There's something that we have. like Our girls can't get physically hurt. And then it extends into emotional protection. So like when your daughter sucks at gymnastics and she comes home and she's crying and saying, Daddy, I hate it. What do you do? You pull her out and you put her into swimming. Right? And so while boys get comfortable facing rejection and failure Girls are inoculated from that. So when they hear feedback, it feels personal. And so perfectionism then has havoc on every aspect of their life. So you see it in school, right? When women are, if you declare economics as a major, if you get a B in your first course, women drop out. Whereas boys are like, I'm getting a B, I'm running for president, right? You see it in mental health. Women are suffering from anxiety and depression at twice the rate of men. And you see it in leadership where Men will apply for a job if they meet 60% of the qualifications. And for women, it's 100. Mm. So I always say, like, if we're waiting to be perfect to lead, if we're waiting to be perfect to live, we'll never close a leadership gap. So the solution to that is bravery. Bravery 
right, is the antidote to perfection, right? It's basically the thing that when you start practicing, it helps you build this muscle of unlearning it. And so I always say like, you know, what does that mean, right? So the first thing is, is like, what are the steps and the tools that I have to tap, I have to do to like start building that bravery muscle? So a couple of things, right? First, I would say like, you can't be brave if you're tired and you'll appreciate this. Mm. You sleep three hours a day, you wake up in the morning, someone comes in with a great idea of what you should do and the next business you should build. You're like, hell no, I don't know about that because you're exhausted, yep. right? Most of us, including your partner, I'm sure, just we're tired, especially yep. right now. Yep. So we're not raising our hand for that promotion. We're not raising our hand to like build that business. We're just trying to get by. And so we have to create a culture where we are allowing women and mothers to rest and, and, and bravery will follow. You know, I think the second thing is, is we have to create a culture where we practice imperfection, you know, where we solicit negative feedback. I, I love Serena Williams and she sits at the edge of her ability you know, and a coach who's saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. It's not personal. It's how you become great. Mm-hmm. And so you got to send that email with a typo in it and recognize that no one cares. Mm. You, When you get rejected, you put that letter on your refrigerator and you stare at it every day as a reminder that no one can tell you that you can't do something. You know, you raise your hand and you fake it till you make it. And, you know, you you do the things to kind of build that muscle and to recognize that you don't have to be perfect and the world will not end if you are not. And that there's a gift in failure, that the greatest teachings and learnings come from getting it wrong. So there's a whole host of practices that I kind of set out in terms of how you build that bravery muscle. And, and, and that means how you unlearn perfectionism. That is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful message that I hope that everyone hears and re-listens to the la- well, the whole conversation with the last five minutes because I have found so much joy. And again, I'm speaking, uh, you know, from a from a male perspective, but I have found so much joy in failing often and failing publicly. Like yeah. I almost thrive on it. Um, I put stuff out really quickly, really fast. I'm I'm uh, I've started so many projects that that just didn't work. And I have no, like I've, and it's not like I've gotten callous to it. That would be bad. I I actually really not revel in it, but I enjoy it because every one of those are a teaching experience. And every one of those are me, like, as you just said, the world didn't stop because I fucked up. Yeah. The world, nothing stopped, nothing stopped. Nobody waited around for, and nobody changed their opinion of me because I failed publicly or because I fail often. Yep. And so much more. I'm already like a, I'm a, I'm a extroverted outgoing dude, right? So much more for women that have all these, uh, 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 these pressures put on them from the system, from culture, from society, so much more. Our girls need to grow up believing that, like yeah, real, right. real, really believing that yeah. bravery is, is monumentally more, it's way more important than perfectionism. It doesn't doesn't matter. That's right. And that's why I've been talking a lot about this idea of a Marshall plan for moms, because I think especially now, right. It's like, when I think about it, like when my school went remote and they came up with a schedule, no one said to me, Hey, Rashma, can you make, can you log them onto zoom at nine and then 10 and then do this assignment and then teach them to read? Like, no, we assume that mothers will be society's social safety net. And now what has happened? Two million women have left the labor force. 
Friday, they released, last Friday, they released the jobs report. All 140,000 jobs lost all for women. I saw that. Right? And alcoholism, mental health issues. Like, it is just because the country does not value our labor. And so you do not value what you do not pay for. And like every mom I know, she's not waiting for a vaccine. She's just waiting for the schools to open. That's when her life changes. Man, I have to go it, every time I walk back in, <laughs> back in the door from my shed out here. The first thing I ask is like, how are you? What do you need? What do you need from me like right now? Because I know, I just know that this day was hard. Why? Because you had to do school for three kids. You're running from yeah. laptop to laptop, basically being a, gl- a glorified IT person, right? Yeah. Just making sure everything's going. And yeah, there's no, nobody's saying, okay, how much should we pay Becky? Because she's yeah. doing this now. Right. And they, and they should, because the thing is, is that when every mayor and governor is deciding what to do with schools or what to do with X policy, they're thinking about the HVAC, they're thinking about their teachers, what should we pay them? What should we do? How, do I need to build the building? But they're not calculating, well, what's the cost for moms? Like what's the cost in the fact that I'm going to lose X amount of women from the labor force by doing that. And we should be factored in. I also think it's so interesting going back to what we had talked about before, you know, as I've released this plan, so many people are like, what about dads or why not just call it caregivers? And I'm like, no, you cannot. Nope. It's not men who are leaving the workforce. It's not, we lose on. And if it was, I call it the Marshall plan for dads, right? Like right. we need a solution for that, but there's such this fear when it comes to gender of calling it what it is and you can't fix what you cannot name mm-hmm. and we have to name it for what it is. And it, and it goes back to, I think our original conversation about America and the reality is, is you can't, there is no more 1960s mom work, not working and dad. We don't, we don't pay people enough. People need to work. Both partners need to work. And sometimes people are working four, five, six, seven, eight jobs. And we have not valued, you know, especially for women of color and our, you know, our, our, our caregivers and people who make society run, we haven't thought about them. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the, the most important part I mentioned earlier, this COVID zero project I'm working on, um, one of the biggest questions that's come up is the first question people ask when we're saying, Hey, like, forget the government, stay home for five weeks. We can do this. We can take care of each other in the community and do it. The first question is money. It's how do we do this? How do we do this? Because nobody cares about us. And it is primarily, again, I can, I, I have set up my life. So I have too many things going on and I'm, I'm, we're, we're blessed. I'm paid. Well, we're getting it done. But a lot of people don't have that. They don't have that safety. We're in a place where yes, it's a, it's a physical, emotional toll on my amazing wife, but it's not a financial toll. Like, no. we could, but for so many, it is. It is for so many. It's like you were a, a, a two-income household, barely making it by even then. Yeah. And now you're a one-income household because you have two kids and you're at home being a full-time, you know, proxy teacher now. And it's wild that we don't take care. And of it's them. even harder for 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 women of color. I mean, think about it, like. Many, like, for example, in New York State, the vast majority of black parents have chosen to for their kids to learn remotely. And when, you know, talk to me and my friends, it's like, listen, you know, my there's so many microaggressions that happen to my kids in school. Mm. And especially you look at the capital siege and you look at who's there and you look at what's happening. You just want to hold your babies close. Yep. And in order to do that, you can't work or you're working the night shift. Right. And so we're not thinking of I mean, who's talking about that? Like who's thinking about that? Who's honoring that choice and the and 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 the depth of like where we're at as a nation when someone has to make that choice? Yeah. 
So I'm really hoping that this is a conversation that we start having. I also, too, among other things that I'll link to in the show notes uh, for those listening, I'm going to link to your your plan because I think it's we need hopefully after this conversation, there will be at least a few more people, you know, yelling about this online, like saying we've got to talk about this. Uh, such an important piece. Let's let's wrap up with this. Um, we're 10 months into this pandemic. We're months away from being out of it. You're obviously doing a ton of cool shit. Um, really great stuff. How are you? I always try to bring this into the conversation because it is so important for people listening that they're, they're going like I am, they're making stuff, they're creating stuff, they're implementing projects and it's tiring, right? Yeah. How are you taking care of yourself? How -hmm. are you making sure that you're okay during this time to, so that you're going to be, uh, uh, so that when we, when we, when we get back to our new and better normal after this is gone, um, that you'll be ready to go. Right. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to have good practices in my life. Like go to sleep, uh, put magnesium oil on my feet, meditate, uh, start my day with something that brings me joy, like music and end my day with a chocolate chip cookie, uh, Mm. which brings me joy. And, um, I don't know. And, And if I can, at the end of the end of the day, find two to three minutes to think about who I want to be when I get out of this. Cause I think that's really important. Like this is a gift, especially for those. And I do not fall in this category, but I have a lot of friends who this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And they're really struggling. Um, but I always think that resiliency, pain, suffering is sometimes the best thing that can ever happen to you. And happened to us as a society, because now like we've looked and we've seen the digital divide. We've seen poverty. We've seen that one out of a thousand black people have gotten COVID. Why is that? Right. We've seen the unfair un, you know, labor of, of mothers. Now, what are we going to do about it? Right. And um, it's like, a, you know, it's like an opportunity for the world to stop, for you to have clear vision about what's broken. And so when we get out of this, we have to be like emboldened, ambitious, and innovative in how to fix those things. You're, you're so right. We, this is a clarifying time for mm-hmm. the world, the globe, but also because we're here, our country. Like we now see more than ever all of the inequities, all of the inequalities, all the disparities. We, I mean, they are, they are front and center. We can't ignore them. And now we've got to take care of ourselves so that when this is when we have the opportunity to branch out more and do more work in a more physical physically interacting way when we're back to normal quote unquote normal we're ready to go yeah because if absolutely. we if we burn ourselves out during this time i mean what 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 is that for like we've got to be ready to go after this is over absolutely and look i think the hardest thing is i i had set my intention for 2021 to to confront my fear because mm. I realized that in 2020, I was just holding it all together, rebuilding my organization, dealing with a newborn, that I wasn't really like like facing the trauma that I was feeling and the fear that I was feeling that something would happen to someone I loved or myself, right? And so I was making choices that weren't as brave as I know I normally am or talking myself out of things. And so, and then of course, the, that was my thing. I was ready to be like, you know, brave and like, look, let's do it, like kill my fear. And then like last week happens and I am like yep. back into a cocoon, like, oh my God, like, is our democracy going to die? You know, what does this mean for communities of color? What does this mean, you know, for people that I love, for myself, mm. right? 
But I think that that's our biggest um, challenge personally is to like get over the fear and the trauma that we're all holding. Yeah, that's really beautiful. There's so much more to unpack, but we're going to leave it there for now. Uh, Reshma, you're a gift to the world. Oh, thank, thank you for you. all the work you're doing. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, and um, I hope this this conversation getting out into the world brings more, you know, uh, more fans and also people that might contribute to this world that you've created. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. Good time talking to you too. Take care. Friends, thank you so much for joining Reshma and me today. Make sure to follow Reshma Shajani and Girls Who Code on social media. So much goodness there. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for more resources and links. Lastly, thank you all for listening. I'm truly honored that you come back week after week after week to listen to these conversations. 2021 is going to be an incredible year of growth for us, and I'm so glad you're here for it. This show is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me, to us, anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.